0: morning, everyone. Well, one of the most influential pastors of the 20th century was an Englishman whose name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he began his career actually as a medical doctor, but he left the field a couple of years later because he felt a call from God to become a pastor. And he ended up spending 30 years at Westminster Chapel in London, and his preaching was so powerful and so logical and so helpful that he became famous all around the world. And he is still regarded by some uh, as being the best preacher of his generation. And in fact, even though he died in 1981, his, his books and I think it was 1,600 sermons that he wrote are still widely read today. Now, uh, right near the end of his life, Lloyd-Jones was diagnosed with cancer, and he became very, very weak and frail to the point where he could hardly get out of bed. And I read this week that during that time, someone asked him a question that was a little something like this. They said, Martin, how are you managing to bear up? You've been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You've begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended through tapes and books to Christians on five continents. And now you've been put on the shelf. You're reduced to sitting quietly and sometimes managing a little editing. I'm not so much asking, therefore, how you are coping with the disease itself. Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? And you know what he did? Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones quoted this passage right here. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is in heaven. And then he said, I am perfectly content. After all of those years that he'd spent preaching and teaching all across the world the good news of the gospel, to other people, even in this man's sickness and old age. He never lost sight of it for himself. And that's what I want to think about this morning for you and for me. Uh, What I'm planning to do today is to spend just the bulk of my time walking us through this passage and explaining what's happening in Luke chapter 10. And then I want to make some closing comments at the end and kind of go back to where we began. Well, this is a wonderful story which takes place while Jesus is on a road trip. Uh, As we've seen over the past couple of weeks, he's on his way to Jerusalem to present himself to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, all of the most important religious leaders of the day who were living in Israel's most important city. And to them, Jesus was going to reveal his identity as the promised Messiah, the one that these very leaders themselves probably read about in their Old Testament Bibles every single day. And yet, instead of being received in Jerusalem with trumpets and fireworks and feasting, Jesus knew that instead he would be welcomed only with fists and with thorns and with nails. And so this journey that Jesus is making is not a casual stroll through the countryside as much as it's like the march of an innocent man who is walking towards an ambush that he knows is coming. But in spite of all of this, as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, he made the most of every opportunity. Uh, every person that he encountered who was sick, he would heal. He would take the time to teach and to care for those that he met along the way. And many friends that he made and, and followers began to travel along with them. And in fact, in this passage, he appoints 72 of these followers to a very, very important assignment, which he describes. In fact, even the number of these followers may have been significant. Now, there's actually some debate as to whether the, the number of these people uh, should be 72 or 70. There's some manuscripts that read 70, and, and your Bible might read 70. And Interpreters have taken it differently, and, and it's a very small point in, in many ways, but the reason that people care about this is That there may be something interesting behind it. Some people see that number as a parallel that kind of goes back to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, in, In Genesis chapter 10, don't have to turn there, but you can. What we're given at the very first book of the Bible is what some have called the Table of Nations. And what it is, is it's a list of all of the descendants of Noah who were born after the flood and who spread out into the world to form the nations of earth. And in Genesis chapter 10, again, there's either 70 or 72 of these nations that are listed depending on which translation you use. And so some people think that it's possible that the reason chose to appoint this number here in our passage, 70 or 72, was that these guys, in a sense, were the first to be sent out into all of the nations with Jesus' message. And this passage is perhaps a foreshadowing of what Jesus' later instructions were in Matthew 28, something that we call the Great Commission, that we, the church, like them, are to go out into all the nations and make disciples. And So some people would say that the work of these 72 that starts here continues with us today. Well, in any case, Jesus gives these 70 or these 72 uh, some instructions. And we need to know, kind of like what Tom talked about last week, that these were specific to them and not to us. However, we can still learn a great deal from them ourselves. And so what Jesus says, as Devin read, is that they were to pair together together using the buddy system, and to travel out two by two to the locations that Jesus was planning to visit and make preparations for his arrival. And as they did, Jesus tells them that they should be prayerful, as there was much work to be done, but few workers who would carry it out. And they would also need to be on guard, he says, watchful and careful. So, because there are many people out there who desired to do them harm. They were being sent out like lambs into the territory of wolves, Jesus said. This mission of theirs was not going to feel safe or comfortable. But Jesus says, in spite of the danger that they were to live by faith. They should travel lightly. No extra shoes or clothes were needed. In fact, he says, you don't even need to bring a bag. He says, and don't worry about bringing cash or or, or credit cards along with you either. You can leave those at home. They were to be so zeroed in on the purpose that Jesus was giving them that they weren't even supposed to greet anybody along the way because in that day, greetings were often very involved and time-consuming There was to be, Jesus says, a certain urgency about your mission. And even if people find you to be a little rude because you're not getting all involved in the social customs of the day, that's okay. Just go. I want you to get this message out. Now, when they arrived at their destinations, the 72 were told they should bless the home that they arrived in using a very common greeting of the day, peace to this house. And if they were were received, they were to remain in that house without going around and looking for a nicer home with a softer bed or maybe a foosball table. And they should accept, Jesus said, whatever financial blessings they were offered for their work. And not only that, but they should be appreciative even, he says here, and not picky about whatever food was set before them. I I guess it was just like in our family that you have to try at least one bite of everything, even if it had onions in it. But the two most important instructions that Jesus came... By the way, I'm going to scratch out that onion thing for the next service. That didn't seem to work very well. (laughs) The two most important instructions that Jesus gave came next. First of all... In every place that they went, Jesus gave them not only the power, but the instruction to heal the sick. And this is where I think this passage gets very, very interesting. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I cannot imagine something so wonderful as being able to heal sick people. I would say that uh, maybe 50% of the prayer cards that we receive each and every week on a Sunday morning that our staff takes ourselves and then we send them out to the elders, otherwise we keep them confidential. Those cards that we receive every week, I would say 50% of the prayer requests on those cards has to do with a sick person who someone in our church loves Uh, Just this past Sunday, alone, just this past Sunday, we received cards and met on Wednesday as a staff to pray for the following people. Uh, A man in chemotherapy. A four-year-old girl who just had a mass removed from her body, which everybody is hoping and praying is not cancer. A young woman with tendinitis. A guy who needs a kidney transplant. A young person who has a very serious drug addiction. A cancer patient. A man recovering from hip surgery. Someone in our congregation who had a stroke but is thankfully okay. A man with lung cancer we prayed for this week. Another man who's having surgery on his foot. We prayed for a woman who had cancer and then contracted pneumonia and unfortunately, she passed away after the prayer request was dropped in the basket. She, she passed away the very next day. I hope that gives you just a little bit of a taste of what the prayer times are like for our staff every week. And I have to tell you, this is just people's health issues. People are suffering all around us. Now, imagine just for a minute if God gave you the ability, the supernatural power to make every single one of those people well again. I mean, what would you do if if just at your touch you could bring to a person complete and instantaneous healing from whatever it was that they were suffering from? What would you do today? You'd get in your car, where would you go? I mean, some of you have an immediate person in mind. Some of you say, I just go to Huron Valley Hospital immediately. And think about how much that would mean to every person that you encountered and how much it would mean to every person who loved that person that you encountered. And think about how much that would mean to you. Well, the 72 were given the ability and the authority by Jesus to temporarily heal the sick in these homes that they were going to visit. And with that power, Jesus just sets them loose to do it. And I got to ask you, what greater joy could you experience in life than to get to do that? I mean, this would be an extraordinary unforgettable event likely the the very highest point of their lives they told their children about this and their grandchildren and 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 they tried to retain all the memories of the faces on the people that they could i'm sure but you see this event got even better because this gift of healing that they were to give those people that they encountered also came with an even greater divine message from God. Jesus said that the 72 were not only to heal them, but they were to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, um, Jesus' healing ministry on earth really served three major purposes. There were three reasons why it was so important for him to heal the sick. And, and you read throughout the Gospels, and you see he's always healing people. And, and the first purpose of it is because it, it communicated to people the warm, compassionate heart of God and, and the fact that he really does care for people's physical needs. Okay, God really does hurt with people who are physically hurting. That, that, that's not off of God's radar, He's not just about the heart. He's about people's bodies as well. And and Jesus exemplified that during his time on earth. But it not only did that, it also authenticated Jesus' message. In other words, the fact that he could heal people with various diseases was the proof that what he said and what he taught was not made up, but it was the truth. For example, in Luke chapter 5, there's this man who's paralyzed that Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven, right? Well, how does anybody who's watching know that this guy's sins have really been forgiven? How does the man even know himself? What Jesus does after that is he, he restores the man so the man can get up and walk. He does something amazing, something wonderful, And the idea is that if Jesus can actually bring a man who can't walk, if he can make him dance, then he has the power to forgive his sins too. Well, finally, the third major purpose is in many ways the most important one. And that is that the blessing of health and life that Jesus granted to people's bodies was meant to be an illustration of the even greater health and life that he meant to bring to their souls. Jesus was bringing with him not only temporary healing from sickness and disease, but eternal life. And his work of restoring people to physical health was meant to be like a little preview like a little trailer of what he desired to accomplish fully and perfectly in the lives of every single person who might trust him. And so as the 72 traveled from town to town lightly, urgently, compassionately, and as they healed everything from tumors to tummy aches, they implored every person that they met, Put your faith in Jesus. Let him do for your soul what he's doing for your body. The kingdom of God has come near to you and this is just a taste. Let me give you just a little hors d'oeuvre. Now all of that sounds pretty straightforward. But you know, Jesus also makes it clear that in spite of all of it, there would be people who would reject them. Now, this is, I think, very hard to understand. Okay, how can you reject a person who's just given sight to the lady next door who's been blind for 10 years? How do you reject a person who does that? How do you reject a person who says to you, I know you're dying of cancer but I'll take it away. You can stay with your family. You can live. You can have life. How do you reject that? Well, it doesn't make sense. But you know, I think we're going to see this as we continue to move through the book of Luke and as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem and then eventually, especially when he arrives, you're going to notice that there there is something that is Terribly wrong in Israel. Okay, there are exceptions, but God's people in general, we're finding as we move through this book, are not in a very good place. As a whole, they are very, very hardened towards Him. And that's why Jesus says next that the the people of Sodom, which was a pagan city in the Old Testament that was filled with terrible, vile wickedness and evil, he says, they would be better off on the day of judgment than the 72. You know, I personally expect more from my children than I do from the neighbor kids. Right? If I see the neighbor kids doing something that they shouldn't do? I think of that very differently than if I see my children doing something that I've told them not to do. I expect more from my children than I do the neighbor kids. And Jesus is saying here that he does too. In in fact, and and I I think this is very striking, he he goes on to say that if the neighbor kids, right, the, the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, which were filled with unbelieving people who didn't even have the the scriptures like the Jews did. If those people could have caught a glimpse of the miracles that were being performed in Israel by the 72, they would have fallen on their knees and repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But what do the children of Israel do? They reject This is such an incrimination against the people of Israel. What Jesus is saying is that the pagans have softer hearts than they do. And anyway, the 72 must have been wondering then, well, how do we respond to those people who reject us? And Jesus says, well, you just respond with the same message. You just tell them the same thing as you tell those who will receive you that the kingdom of God has come near. Some are going to receive it and others won't, Jesus says, but your job is just to share it. Your job is just to tell them. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament that the gospel will be received like a fragrant aroma to some and like a stench to others. But regardless, we should share it anyway. Because if it really is good news, it has to be shared. If it's really true, and if it's really good, then it's got to be spoken. Even if it gets rejected. And Jesus instructs them that that, that, that even if they are not received, they should share it anyway. However, he says, there's no need to argue with people. don't have to be argumentative. He says, all you should do is just wipe the dust of that town off of your feet and move on to a place where the people are more receptive. And then he says also one more thing. He says, don't take it personally. He says, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. He says, it all rolls in that direction. He says, when people reject you, what they're really doing is rejecting me. And when they reject me, what they're really doing is rejecting my father who sent me. He says, so don't take it personally. He says, it's not about you. It's not that you necessarily did a bad job sharing that news. He says, it's not about you, it's it's about me. Now, one last thing happens in this passage. It turns out that the 32 encountered not only human opposition, but spiritual opposition as well. Uh, demonic activity seemed to be greatly heightened during the time of Jesus' ministry on earth and apparently the 72 were confronted with some of it. These guys were kind of newbies to this, okay? And, and, And this must have been pretty scary for them at the time. But it turns out that Jesus, which we discover here in verse 19, had also given them the authority, he says, to tread on serpents and scorpions, which are two symbolic images of spiritual forces, Jesus was not going to allow any of these sinister beings to harm them in any way. And in fact, he says that he himself saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. He says, because of the authority that he had given them, it wasn't the 72 who should be worried about the demons, but really it ought to be the other way around. And so, now... After seeing all of that, the 72 return from their adventure, right? Together as a team, just think about what they've accomplished. They've they've healed the sick. They've watched people put their faith in Christ. They've overcome tremendous opposition from human beings and spiritual forces And if a person could stand there with a microphone and interview them and say, you've just done all of that, how do you feel? Well, it all gets summed up in in one word. In verse 17, it says, they feel joy. Do you get that as you read this? I know none of us were there, but do you get just a little taste of that joy that they must have felt? new friends together, people in their hearts, people they've promised to visit or write later, seeing Jesus work so powerfully through them, they were just delighted and and filled with such gratitude and and a sense of wonder. I'm sure that there were there, many there who who were shedding tears, What what wonderful things they'd seen and done. And yet, without diminishing their experience in any way, Jesus points to their joy and he says, you know what? There's an even deeper source of an even deeper joy. He says, don't rejoice in all of this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the spot, he says, to find your deepest joy. When I uh, was a little boy, my father once took me to work with him. And uh, he brought me into his office and he uh, introduced me to his coworkers and he showed me around the building. I, I got to sit at my dad's desk for a few minutes and play with his pens and and swivel around in his chair. And then he put me to work. Uh, There was a woman who administrated the office whose name was uh, Bobby, and I helped her make copies and stapled papers together. And there was no email or really, I don't even think computers at the time. And so she would have me walk from office to office and deliver messages to people on little slips of paper. And uh, at the end of the day, I remember to my delight, she handed me a card, and inside this card was just this very sincere thank you for all the work that I had done for her and how helpful I had been to her, and there was a $5 bill in it. And I, I felt so good about that day. You know, I felt so important. I knew that I was supposed to be in school, but there I was. I was at work just like one of the adults. It was like I was experiencing something that was above me, beyond my, my status in life. Well, God loves to take his children to work with him. In fact, God wants to take each and every one of you to work with him. He loves to give us a taste of what he himself takes so much pleasure in, his work in the lives and the hearts of human beings. God loves to put us to work for the sake of his kingdom. And he loves to surprise us by using us in ways that we never thought we were capable of. God loves to empower his people to serve and to teach and to care for other people. And the only thing that you need to be to go to work for God is willing. And you've got to make yourself available. And at the end of your life, what God promises is that you will receive not only his gratitude, but also great reward. When we put our lives into the service of Jesus in big ways and small, God uses it to change us and to change other people. And he uses us to give us such a sense of of his joy. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that there can also be a subtle danger in this. Our work with God can easily be turned into our identity. Uh, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would often take some of the guys from our youth group uh, individually out for lunch and to be honest, in my early years especially, this would sometimes make me really nervous. More nervous than they were. And, and they were nervous. Sometimes, I remember I would go to meet with a teenager who was very, very withdrawn and shy and quiet. And I'd, I'd pick him up and I'd take him to a restaurant. And as I drove there, I'd be thinking to myself, how on earth am I going to make conversation with this person for an hour you know, what am I going to do? This is going to be terribly awkward. And, and so I I'd drive there and I'd, I'd really pray, God, please help me. Please at least help the time to go by quickly. <laughs> I'd pray, give me, a, give me a curiosity about this person. Help me to ask the, the right questions. And, and I just pray that you would use me in their life somehow. And sometimes, to my surprise, God did. I mean, sometimes the person would open up and we'd have a great conversation and I'd feel like I'd been able to be helpful or encouraging to them. And those days I would go home feeling so happy, like the best thing in the world that I could have done. In all the world, give me a choice. And I would have chosen to sit in that booth at McDonald's with that kid for an hour. But then there were other times I would go and it really would be awkward I mean, there were times when it would really be like torture, and, and I'd per- try to pretend it was just you know normal, it was a good conversation, but in my mind I'd be thinking, oh, man, when, am, when are they going to finish their sandwich? This is tough. <laughs> and I wouldn't feel like I was much help or encouragement at all. And on those times, I'd go home, and, and I'd feel like a failure. I'd feel like I was a lousy youth pastor. And, and sometimes I'd feel like, boy... I'm a lousy person. Somebody else could do this. I didn't get anywhere. Well, most people tend to measure themselves by the results of their effort. If something goes well, they feel good about themselves. If something goes badly, they feel bad about themselves. But the good news, in fact, this wonderful news, is that God, when he invites us to join him in his work, he never intends, please hear this, he never intends that a person's sense of worth or value would be derived from it. You are not what you do for God. Our work for God is never to become our identity, although I'm afraid that many people, especially Christian leaders, fall into this trap. Our deepest sense, of who we are and why we matter and what gives us value and purpose and worth is always meant to be found in what Christ has done in our hearts through the gospel and the implications that it has for us for all of eternity. The remarkable truth that if you have given your life to Jesus then God, in spite of every single thing that you've ever done wrong, has taken in his hand a pen with ink that is so permanent that it will never fade for all of eternity. And he's written down your name in his heavenly book. Can you believe that? And the sense of wonder that we're to have, the sense of delight that is supposed to flow out of that truth is meant to energize us all of our lives, every day. Don't rejoice that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. May you do that today. May that be your joy. Let's pray. Father, we just confess to you this morning that some days the engines of our faith are burning hot and we feel that joy. We feel that sense of wonder and surprise that you would take somebody like us and make us your own. And yet we confess to you too that there are other days when those engines seem to have gone cold or to have stopped altogether. Oh, Father, would you use this passage in us today? Would, Like like David said in Psalm 51, would you restore to us the joy of your salvation? We thank you so much that these words that we read are true. We thank you so much that we have nothing to prove. Pray that you would give us each that confidence this morning. Help us to find our worth and our value not in what we can do but in what you've done. In Jesus' name, Amen.